All right, we're going to be in the book of Joel. So again, I invite you to open up. And again, I want to just try to settle in our minds what's going on in the book of Joel, why we're here, what we're looking for. The book of Joel is kind of unique. And because it's unique, it can, uh, maybe more than many of the other uh, prophetic books, speak to us. The other prophetic books are prophesying about events that are coming, and, and the same is true about Joel. But Joel's also giving us a, a uh, bird's-eye view lesson of pattern-equaling prophecy. So I want you to understand a little better the concept of the, of the day of the Lord. So if you think about the day of the Lord, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, you have... Uh, Adam and Eve declaring their independence. They had an independence day, right? We don't need God to tell us good from evil. We're going to uh, make choices for ourselves. So we can define good and evil. That's the fall, right? That's the fall of, of man. And as they enter into that fall, that moment, death enters in to the humankind's relationship. And, and as man's on the earth, we come to the flood. And it was... The thought, the thought of every man continually was evil continually. So there was a day of the Lord. We call it the flood. Where there was a cleansing, right? And there was a saving of Noah and his family. And we see God's hand dealing with the wickedness that's in the world. Now that pattern is going to play out over and over and over again. We have, you know, if we if we if we go through Genesis chapter 11, we have the tower of Babel. The floods in Genesis 7, Babel's in Genesis 11, then we have uh, again man trying to make himself God, to build a tower that he can stand on and say, I'm the greatest. And God confusing the language and scattering the people. It's a day of the Lord, God dealing with wickedness. And then he calls his own peculiar people to be a light. And for the nation of Israel's early history, most of the time when the day of the Lord came, it was against her enemies. So Israel's there trying to, to, to um, be a light, right? Like, example, the Exodus. And so there's a day of the Lord as the Lord delivers them out of the hands of Pharaoh. Remember all the miracles, all the things that God did. Pharaoh's army ultimately being caught in the flood and Israel delivered. But there came a point in Israel's history when the prophets began to call a day of the Lord that was coming upon Israel. Because now all that wickedness that maybe Israel thought of as being outside is inside. It's their wickedness. And so you have still, you have the exile that takes place um, in Assyria to the northern kingdom. Israel is exiled by Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, later on is exiled by the Babylonians. 
And then again, in 70 AD, the nation of Israel is exiled, right, to the four corners of the earth. And so you have this pattern laid out that there is a day where God will judge wickedness of the world, right? And in that day, he will deliver the righteous and he will judge wicked. And prior to that judgment, you can read all these same things in a book of Revelation. Prior, am I off? I got two things on? Okay. Prior to that, prior to that judgment, what you're going to see is a call to repentance, right? Everybody, as we've been working our way through the prophets, you have a day of the Lord coming, a day of judgment. You have a call for repentance. The people are called to repent. And then if the people respond to that call, you have acts of repentance. And those, those acts of repentance that we see, they often uh, are illustrated... Um, just by the people crying out to God. People crying out to the Lord, Lord, save us. And then God responds. He responds by delivering them through whatever was going on, carrying them through, getting them to the other side, and then a promise of restoration, right? That I'm going to bring you back. I'll restore to you the things that you've lost. We'll see the same thing in Joel. And ultimately the prize is God's presence. God's presence will be with you. And this pattern is laid out for us in the book of Joel through a couple of illustrations. And the first one we're looking at in chapter one is the illustration of the, the, uh, um, what do you call them? Locusts. The locusts that I got, all I could think of was grasshopper, and that just wasn't quite the same. I know it's pretty close to the same, but you guys know what I mean. So we have the example of the locust. So I just want to read chapter 1 all together, and then we'll finish off from where we left off last week. But understand that the locust, it's irrelevant whether or not there was really a, a, a literal locust that came and ate all their crops. It's illustrating the judgment of God, and when the judgment of God happens, everything's gone. And we'll see that when we get to the end. And you'll see it again in chapter 2. He's going to repeat it. And in each time, the day of the Lord is preceded by a call for repentance. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, what's one of the things that marks the book of Revelation? It says over and over again, after the events continue to, to develop, they would not repent. And they would not repent. And they would not repent, right? Right? So this is the pattern. The pattern is the wickedness is going to be judged. God will judge the wickedness of the world. Amen? Jesus Christ has made a way so that the wicked of the world, you and I, can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? So we repent and believe, and Jesus Christ cleanses us, and we are, are taken from a position of humility, calling out, for salvation and exalted to be with him. But there will be a judgment upon the world, right? The Bible says every knee will bow, yes? Every tongue will confess. So we see this judgment will come. Prior to that judgment, there will be calls of repentance to surrender. And then there's expected to be acts 
of repentance where God's people, just like we're going to read in Joel about Joel doing this, crying out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord, his own personal prayer, Daniel, his own personal prayer, crying out to the Lord for, for God's forgiveness and for his uh, salvation. So let's look at it. Remember, as we go, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? This this horrific event that he's going to describe. Now, I think after going through studying Joel, I think Joel, I, I would probably place him as a prophet in the initial return from exile. There's a couple of reasons for that. He's never going to mention Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. He's going to talk about a temple, but the temple was destroyed by, by Nebuchadnezzar, but rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's going to talk about the city of Jerusalem again. So in order to have all those things, and he never mentions a king. So they had never had a king after that. So you have, as they have returned, now if you think about the 70 years of captivity and all the stuff they'd just been through, And you have this prophet come on and he begins to say, have you ever seen something like this in all your life where everything was taken away? And if you think about it, that was just something they had experienced within their lifetime. The children who went to exiles were the old men and women who came back to the land. He says, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, their children to another generation. Spread the word. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust ate. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. This is a little bit of a tang tangler. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Remember we talked about this last time. The point is, wave after wave after wave, you think it's as bad as it's going to get, and it got worse. And in, if you see locusts, a, a swarm like this come through, they literally will eat everything to the dirt. So you could take a picture and you could say, <clears throat> you could say, look at the, all this lush land, and then it looks like a desert after they pass through. So they will just eat it all. They will, in, uh, in roughly a yard, 34 inches, uh, locusts will lay 60,000 eggs that will develop into swarming and cutting and eating locusts. And, and it perpetuates. So th- th- it just doesn't go away. It will literally eat everything to nothing. Now the point for me is not necessarily that that event occurred and the locusts came through as much as that was the experience they had had when Nebuchadnezzar came through the last time and he destroyed the city and he wiped out all the crops and there was nothing left. Nothing is there. So he says, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. And the idea is the proper attitude when, uh, when the Lord's judgment falls upon his people is to lament. So if we were to kind of outline it, we would say when the judgment of God falls, we lament and then we repent. And so this is what's going on. He's calling them to lament. All, everything's gone. 
right? The, the house that was your house is not your house anymore. It's just rubble. Everything is gone. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and its fangs of a lioness. And it laid waste my fig tree and splintered my fig tree. It stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So you see now when he's talking about the locusts, he also mentions a nation. Right? Are you guys tracking with me? So, so we have illustrations, a poem written by Joel to describe the events that they have been through and the pattern so that for the future they can recognize this is a pattern. If we find ourselves in the same old pattern, we should wake up. Amen? Like you ever found yourself in the same old pattern? You ever, you, you have that thing that you just continually fall into and you know, well, it starts like this, you know, first I, I, I make a clean start and everything's good. And then I, I'm doing so good. I'm, I'm, I'm eating all my vegetables. And then <coughs> comes the day when I don't. And I start to complain about, and then the next thing you know, I haven't had vegetables in five years. And I have to get back to coming back to a place where you eat vegetables. Whatever your thing is, you guys get what I'm saying? We have a pattern. And so Joel is laying out for us this pattern of prophecy. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. So as he's laying out for us this, this call from the Lord, as he's working his way through, he's saying, look, everything's turned off. There's no joy anymore. So he's making a call for lamentation. There is a time for God's people to wail. There is a time for God's people to weep over the destructive parts of sin. I have been a part of families who were praying for children that were no longer uh, following the Lord and were in a state of rebellion where the parents couldn't even form words for their prayers. All they could do was weep and howl. And it was powerful because it's a direct line from their heart and their pain and their sorrow to God's ears. And God's church has forgotten how to lament. So this, this call, lamenting, worship is cut off, joy is gone, the, the wine is dried up, the oil languishes the fields destroyed the ground is mourning even creation is mourning doesn't that what paul says in romans for all of creation groans waiting waiting for the day when the sons of god will be revealed when the when the lord will return when when the day of the lord comes when it's not a pattern for illustration but the ultimate the ultimate time when he will when he will return so then he says in verse 11 so be ashamed o tillers of the soil this is the call to lament be ashamed 
wail, vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, the harvest of the field is perished. The vines dry up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. So everything, you get the picture that Joel is describing. And if you think back to the, to the conquering of the children of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, and three times they were conquered, and the last time Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he just didn't leave a stone on another stone. He t- tore it all down. And so the call from the prophet is, remember the past? Remember all those things that have been, that were taken and were lost? If we want to prepare our hearts to be faithful to walk in the future, we cannot forget the lessons of the past. We cannot forget the things that God has laid out. And so we have a call uh, in verse 13. Look at the call. Now he's going to shift from just everybody, the people, the farmers, the people who are living around the city. He's going to call for lamentations from the priesthood. Look what he says. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. So the call of lamentation goes even to the to the holy men, right, of the, of the period, to, to come into a, a state of mourning. Now, part of that mourning and lamentation is the idea of putting on sackcloth. What was that all about? Well, it was about humbling oneself. Look, nobody wore sackcloth. The poor people didn't wear sackcloth because it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable, do they? I certainly don't wake up in the morning and go find my most uncomfortable T-shirt and put my most uncomfortable T-shirt on. I don't do that. I go put on my favorite most broken T-shirt and my favorite most broken pair of jeans. I'm looking for comfort. But when you put on sackcloth, you're so intent on getting to the presence of the Lord that you want to come in a in a show of humility and say, it's not about my comfort. It's not about any of these things. It's a sign of humility to come in sackcloth and ashes. And so the call to the priesthood to lament because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So then the house of God was gone right in the past. We're going to see in chapter 2, we'll be looking toward the future. But I think the absence of of offering speaks to an apathy toward the Lord. And then when it's taken away, for some reason we wake up. Mike, can you think of something in our own history in the United States where Something was taken away from us, some freedom maybe that we enjoyed and we never thought about it until somebody took it away. So we can grow apathetic toward the things of life. We're not really engaged in what's going on until it's gone. Now we're we're playing catch up. Make a lamentation. Wail out to the Lord. Mourn the things that have been taken. And then the call to repent. Look what he says in verse 14. Here's the call. Consecrate 
a fast, call it a solemn assembly. Gather all the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So what's he telling the holy men to do? Okay, make your lamentation, cry out, sorrow for where you're at, but then call a fast. Get your hearts right before God. Gather everyone into the house of the Lord. Consecrate a solemn assembly. So the solemn assembly, they would come together like a high holy day. And they would seek God's face. They would cry out to him. They would pray. They would worship. They would, they would seek that blessing, that touch from the Lord. So the idea is like, hey, you guys that are priests and, and are part of the priesthood, gather everyone together. Get them into God's house so that they could cry out to the Lord. This is all part of the call to repentance, the call to gather together. And the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is when you look at, you know, Jordan discussed it a little bit uh, this evening as he was doing worship. How do you look at uh, God's involvement and our responsibility in disasters whether they're health disasters maybe cancer or some other struggle with your health uh, physical disasters uh, fire crash tragedies how do you look at those things how do you see it and i i wrote down i think there's probably four four common ways i guess that that people respond when the locusts have come through. Now hear what God's asking us for us to gather in his house, lament and repent. But sometimes we say, well, we look at the disaster and we say, it proves that God is not really that involved in the circumstances of human life. And some would say, if he has the power to stop it and doesn't, he's not good. And if he's powerless to change it, then he is not all-powerful so God is either evil or weak and there are people who view disasters that way some believe that disasters are the work of Satan that God allows and that they are a part of a spiritual warfare some people believe that disasters are a result of sin in our lives and some believe that God is the cause. He brings disaster for reasons and purposes that we may not always understand. In Amos 3.6, we'll be there in a few weeks. He says, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has done it? In Isaiah 45, verse 7, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, I form light and I create raw. So depending on what translation you have, some translations will say I create evil. Others will say I create disaster. Some will say I create darkness. The word means more than 
probably any of those things, but the basic idea is that the catastrophes that come into existence pass through the hands of a God who loves his creation. I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. How we look at the locus and how that affects our lives, you know, how we think about God. It always makes me shudder a little bit, but in 25 years of ministry, I've heard this many times. Well, my God would never do that. I, I try not to say those words, my God, because if I'm wrong, then I have a wrong God. Right? Do you guys realize it's possible to worship a God that exists in your mind only? And it's not the true God of Scripture? So we want to allow Scripture to say what it says. The prophet Joel saw disaster as a judgment from God, speaking of the day of the Lord, and a warning, a pattern to be avoided, lessons to be learned, so that when disaster strikes, it's not bad to lament. It's not wrong to weep and wail for the pain or the hurt or the, the, the things you feel. I've shared with you guys before, I'd probably only been in ministry maybe <clears throat> less than five years, and my wife and I were we're doing, we did a lot of marital counseling back in those days, and we were doing marital counseling for a young couple, and <clears throat> I was in a, a Bible study with young adults at the time, and somebody come running in the office and handed me a note, and all the note said was, Billy just ran over his baby. So I left and went to the hospital to be with a mom and dad who were already struggling in their marriage while their baby is dying. And they tried to save the baby. They could not save the baby. The baby died. And there was weeping and wailing. And it's okay. That's not being unfaithful. That's not somehow, there's not some way in which God would have someone not mourn over things like that. The only time God ever did that was to Ezekiel, as far as I know. The Lord told Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife and you're not allowed to mourn. But otherwise, now people say, well, well, Jackie, surely the Lord didn't have anything to do with that. Either God is sovereign over all creation or he's not sovereign over any of it. So, so whether you justify it by saying he allowed it or it was part of God's purpose and plan, you know the one thing that dad wanted to know? The father who had ran over his little girl, you know what he wanted to know, the, the word that comforted him? Jackie, tell me this is part of God's plan. Tell me it's part of God's plan that my little girl died. That's what he wanted. He didn't want to hear... You know, bad things happen. We live in a fallen world. All those things are true, aren't they? He wanted to know that there was a sovereign God over creation. And God, because it didn't make the pain less, right? He was weeping when he asked me and he was weeping afterwards. It didn't make the pain less. It made the pain meaningful. 
It meant that it mattered. There was something God's doing. Whether it's in them, in the, in the couple, in the family, in people outside, no matter what, there was something that was being done. So the point is, the prophet Joel, he saw disaster as the judgment of God and a warning to learn from that it's okay to lament and then the proper response is to repent and bear acts of repentance and then trust God. What else are you going to do? There's no, there's no, there's no way to, to line up all the planets and make sense of that other than saying, I'm, I'm choosing to trust God. I'm choosing to put my hope in him. And trust that God is able. That's why I love the words that the Lord speaks in the book of Revelation when he says, see, I make all things new. And those are the things I share in those times. God makes all things new. It's, I'm sorry, I know it hurts. And I'll, I'll mourn with those who mourn. Not try to take anything away. But recognize that we need to trust God. If I leave that circumstance and I say, that's it, God. You don't do what I want. You didn't. My little girl died. That's it. Did I make it better or worse? If I run from God for the next 30 years of my life, did I make it better or worse? If my whole family crumbles and falls apart, did I make it better or worse? To me, the only answer is trust God. And stand with him. And it's okay to lift your eyes to heaven and weep and lament. And it's okay to look to the heavens and trust the Lord. Now look what he says in verse 15. He says, now alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the almighty it comes. So the idea, the day of the Lord, the destruction of wickedness and evil, isn't that what Jesus ultimately accomplishes on the cross? He defeated death once and for all, right? Was death defeated? What happened three days later? He arose. So death was defeated, right? Death has been defeated. Jesus Christ has accomplished that. And so we... We have nothing to fear. We have everything to hope for. For the day of the Lord is near. Destruction comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. Even the beasts, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed for there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. There is no place else to go. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, my ways are higher than your ways. God knows things we don't know. God sees things we don't see. 
And we can speculate over all what those things are, no matter what happens in life, no matter what hospital room I find myself in in life. I know God is good. I know that God is just. I know that God loves me. I know these things because I pour them into my life, into my heart, in his word. So when those days come, I'm able to stand, not because of the lies my brain is spinning. Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? He's right here. Now, here's a better question. Lord, what are you doing? Anybody ever not know what God's doing? Anybody ever said, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening, why, what's going on? That's a, that's a better question to ask, isn't it? Lord, what, why? What, what, what's happening? What, open my eyes, open my ears, open my understanding, whatever it is. But where's God? He's, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's right here. He saw this day long before this day saw me. And he's worthy of my trust the day after and the day of. He's worthy still. So to you, O Lord, I will call. Now look how he describes the judgment of the locusts we've been reading about. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And flame has burned all the trees of the field. Now, now he's using the illustration of fire, which probably is what Nebuchadnezzar did when he burned all the fields and the houses and the trees, and he totally demolished the entire city. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So you see that in this judgment, this day of the Lord, little day of the Lord, we're looking for a big day of the Lord, right? Little day of the Lord. You see the removal of joy, the rottenness of their crops, the animals and the creation is crying out and calling out. Everything is has the same kind of cry, same kind of call, same, same kind of, of pain and, and struggle and suffering that's going on. And then he tells us what that all is. In chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll, we'll talk about this again next week. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It reminds me of Matthew 24 when Jesus said, and these you'll hear wars of wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and pestilence in various places. And then Jesus says, but the end is not yet. These are the beginning of sorrows. Why is there a beginning of sorrows? Because God's call is for lamentation and repentance. It's an opportunity to be restored. It's actually God's long suffering that doesn't just snap his fingers and it's all done with. 
it gives opportunity for men and women to call out to God. He describes it in verse 2 of chapter 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness. There is spread on the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And so he begins to describe again. We were talking about locusts, remember? And then we were talking about fire, and now we're talking about an army, and in a little while we'll be talking about locusts again. And as we go through, we need to understand the point of the illustration is to recognize this is the pattern. Before the big day comes, there's a period of suffering that enters in, and that period of suffering draws Men and women provides men and women the opportunity for repentance to turn their heart toward God where he promises to deliver, restore, and be with them. This pattern is going to go all the way. You see this pattern from Genesis to Revelation. Replayed over and over again because pattern is prophecy. Now hang tight because as Joel is giving us all these examples to help us understand why would you choose that? Think about this. Why in the world if if I laid out this is the this is where this road leads. If I if I caught you on a road and I got you to pull over and I said, "Hey, don't you know this road there's a fire up there and if you keep going, you're going to burn." There's no water, there's no food, there's no gas, there's no place to stop. There's nothing on this road but pain and suffering and destruction. That's what's on this road. Why would you keep going down that road? Isn't that what man does? Over and over and over. We see that and we keep going. We see that and we hear the warnings. We kill the prophet. Who are you to tell me there's no food or water or gasoline on this road and I'm going to die out here? And then we take off to our own destruction. Why does Joel write this? So we can see pattern is prophecy. Recognize, as Jesus will say in Matthew 24, the sign of the times. Recognize the response that ought to flow out of the hearts of men. So that when Jesus says, hey, that road doesn't go where you want to go, we freely choose to say, like he said on Sunday, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then what does he ask? Take my yoke. He didn't say, I'm going to put it on you. I'm going to force my yoke on you. He asked you to take it. Take my yoke, put it on, learn from me, follow me, right? Be joined together with me. It's a lesson that we have to understand and apply, especially for the days we see ourselves in. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to study your word, to look at the beginning of Joel and 
God, I, I just so much want to be able to keep the, the flow, the flow, the poem of that, that, that Joel is saying, look, here's, here's an example from the past and see what happened. And do you remember, have you told your children, have you talked to them about the things that we've gone through? And, and then when we see this pattern come up again, are our children prepared? Are our grandchildren prepared? Have we taught them? Have we shown them? Have we, have we explained to them so that they, they don't lose faith in the day of, of struggle? Jesus said, there will be all these things, but the end is not yet. We're not talking about the great tribulation. We're just talking about life on this rock. Lord, may we trust in you. May we stand together with one another and encourage one another. May we be quick to call the assembly for a solemn assembly to cry out to the Lord, to pray, to fast, to seek your face. These are the ways that we change our days. So God, I pray that you be glorified and you be magnified. Help us learn the lesson of Joel. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.